2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle, letter, made you sorry, though for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. A number of years ago, my wife and I were traveling to Florida. Her parents have lived there for a number of years, and they're on the western side of the state, the Gulf Coast. So sometimes we go down the highway, down 95, and cross over Orlando, and we stay pretty much to the highway. Sometimes we head west a little bit higher up in the state, go through Ocala. Some of you have been to Florida, you know those places. But the Ocala Way is a little bit more rural, not quite as many highways. So we'd gone this way before, and there's a spot that you come to where you have to make a turn onto a different road, exit like you would have on 95 and all that. And we were just kind of cruising along, talking, not really paying attention. And we took the exit. By the time it was on us, we didn't really see the signs, but we took the one that seemed most natural, seemed to be going in the right direction. So we're driving and just talking and driving and time is passing and something feels wrong. You know that feeling? Something's not feeling right. So we go, where are we? (laughs) And we start to look for signs and we're waiting and trying to find a sign. And finally, we see a sign that tells us, I forget what city was on the sign and how many miles away, but it was north. And we realized for the last hour, we had been driving the wrong way. From here, it's already a 15, 16 hour trip. And now we've just added two hours because not only did we go an hour out of our way the wrong direction, but now we've got an hour to just get back where we started off course to start going the right way again. And I can't tell you the feelings, the emotional gamut that I felt when I went through that anger. Of course, I blame my wife first. This is your fault. This is all your fault. You've been paying attention. You're the navigator. I'm the driver. So anger turned outward. And then I go through the anger, turned inward. I was so stupid. I can't believe we did that. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was just ornery. I was just mad about making that decision. And now I got to turn around. I had choices. I guess we could have said, you know what? Forget it. Let's just go home. We're already heading north. I'm just going to keep going and forget the whole trip. Or we could say, all right, we blew it. We went the wrong way. We're going to turn around and we're going to start going back in the right direction. You know, eventually the feelings calmed down. We got back on the right track. We eventually arrived and all was well. I tell that story because that is a repentance put in another context. Repentance is a word, I think, it's one of the most beautiful words that we rarely use. There's a lot of beautiful words in the Bible, love and grace and mercy, beautiful words. But repentance, we really don't use that word, especially in the contemporary American church, We don't like to talk about repentance, even though Jesus talked about it and John the Baptist talked about it. It's a beautiful word. And it really means a change of mind that brings about a change of direction. So really what I did when we were driving north, I repented. I changed my mind about the direction I was going. I was going the wrong way. I changed my mind about going that way. And I had to prove that. I had to turn the car around and start going the right direction. And really, I think for me and for many of us, that's kind of symbolic of our lives with Christ, isn't it? Can you look back at the time in your life where you guys just go in the wrong direction? In life, with my decisions, I was going away from God. And there was a time 
when I had to acknowledge I was going away from God, turn around and start going to God. And this chapter, I don't know about you, but I memorize the Bible like I give titles to chapters. And maybe you do as well. 1 Corinthians 13, that's the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, that's the resurrection chapter. Well, 2 Corinthians 7 is the repentance chapter. It is probably the best passage in the Bible on the topic of repentance that you will find all wrapped up into one location. So before we get to all of that discussion of repentance, we have to start back at verse one in the chapter, which really is an unfortunate chapter break. I probably should have done verse one with the end of chapter six. Chapter seven, verse one begins with, therefore having these promises, and you say, what promises? I'll tell you in a minute. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having these promises, the promises that Paul had just told them, he says to them, number one, he said, stop being unequally yoked to unbelievers. Stop doing that. What fellowship does light have with darkness? They're incompatible. And he's showing that believers, really in terms of close partnership or fellowship, are incompatible. We don't have anything in common. Christ doesn't have anything in common with Satan. So he lays that out to them. And this week, we just got into 1 Kings on Wednesday night. And as I was reading the book and trying to get an idea of what it's about, right there in the middle of 1 Kings, we're introduced to Solomon in the beginning. King Solomon, King David's son, the next heir to the throne after David. And the beginning of 1 Kings starts out with this wonderful, peaceful, united kingdom. And the second half of the book is this horribly divided and kingdom at war. What happens in the middle of the book is that the king's heart, King Solomon, the wisest guy ever to live, his heart has departed from the Lord. Why does that happen? Because he defied what God said. God said, don't marry foreign wives who worship other gods. And Solomon thought he knew better than God. He amassed to himself wives. And the Bible says right there, around chapter 11 or 12, I can't remember exactly which it is, that his marriage to foreign wives, including the daughter of Pharaoh, turned his heart away from God. And that's what Paul's fear is with the relationships that are dominant in their lives are not Christ-like, at least some of them. They're not Christian relationships. They're ungodly relationships. They have gravitated toward darkness. So they're playing two sides of the court. They're going to church, but then most of their relationships, their closeness is with people that aren't believers. They're partnering. They're involved with, again, please understand, we are not to cut off all relationships from all people that are not like us. And Paul even says that to do that, you'd have to go out of the world. And that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's talking about close, intimate partnership and fellowship, the communion that we share as believers. Nobody else thinks like us. Have you noticed that? I hope you've noticed by now that there's a lot of places you just don't fit in. We got invited to a party years ago. Neighbor was having a party, invited us over, and we got to the party, and I've never felt more out of place. You just don't fit in. This is where I fit in. This is my family. It's where I belong. So Paul has gone through that with then, he quotes some Old Testament passages, Isaiah, and I think Jeremiah, and he says, come out from among them and be separate, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. He says to them, I will dwell in you and be with you. So if you stop partnering with darkness and stop hanging out in all those places where you know you shouldn't be hanging out with those people you know are no good for you, 
if you stop that, you will then experience the relationship that you really long for of having a heavenly father and you being a son or a daughter. If you've never experienced that, it's hard to explain to you. I can't tell you how many times God has acted on my behalf in ways I never would have dreamed of as a father and me as a son. He says, for having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. So he doesn't threaten them with judgment. He doesn't threaten them with, if you don't knock it off, God's going to get you. Because sometimes that's where we like to go as the church, isn't it? We like to just threaten people into heaven. Stop it, quit it, knock it off or else God's going to get you. But that's not the motivation that is the primary motivation in the Bible. And it's certainly not Paul's motivation here. Since God's given promises to you. And if you will embrace them, and to embrace them, you're going to have to turn away from some things. And if you'll turn away from those things, because you can't serve two masters, you can't have fellowship with darkness and with light at the same time, you've got to choose. And if you choose me, God says, you'll experience a relationship that you never could have dreamed of. I'll be a father to you. And because that's true, that's why you cleanse yourself. That's where purity comes from, not from threats or more willpower or, well, I guess people in church say I have to or peer pressure. Purity doesn't come from those things. Purity comes from a desire for a close relationship with God. And that's what Paul hinges on here. Not just quitting the filthiness, stop playing in the mud, he says, get cleaned up. And that's something he says for us to do. He doesn't say pray that God would clean you up. He says, did you notice that? Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. It means stop doing those things. And instead, what do I do instead? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Fulfilling further separation from the things of the world. The things of the world should not be comfortable to us. The way the world thinks, the way the world lives, the way the world acts. These things should be awkward for us as believers. So he says, cleansing ourselves, perfecting holiness, a really separation in the fear of God. That's just what he's been telling them the whole time. Come out and be separate. And I hope that's okay with you. John said that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So there's either the world or there's the Lord. And you can't have both because you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. So if you still love the world, then your relationship with God will never be what it could be or was meant to be. Does that make sense to everybody? Are we together on that? The world is there. We use the world. We show up for work. We have to get a paycheck because we got to put food on the table. But there's, a, you know, come on, there's a difference between being in the world and being in love with the world and the things of the world. I'm so happy. I'm so thankful that the things of the world, the things other people chase after, they just kind of lose their excitement. That doesn't do anything for me anymore. I'm just not excited about the same things I used to be before I was a Christian. Anyway, that was way too long on the first verse. <laughs> but Paul then says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So Paul's been asking them to make room in their hearts for him. Remember, there's a contingency probably led by one or two people in Corinth that were against the apostle Paul. There were other people that were for him and will rejoice over them in this section. But there were a lot of people that were sort of anti-Paul and they'd been led by this ringleader who was condemning Paul's ministry and bringing accusations. And that's what he's saying here. The people that are against Paul and really against God in some ways are affecting other people and causing their hearts to shrivel up toward Paul. So Paul is begging them saying, look, 
Don't close me out. Parents, you know how that feels? Don't shut me out. I haven't done anything to deserve it. I've been honest with you guys. I haven't wronged anybody. I haven't corrupted anybody. I haven't cheated anybody. There's no reason to shut me out. You're paying attention to the gossip. Have you ever had that happen to you? Oh, as a pastor, you better believe I have. Someone gets a burr under their saddle and they decide to tell someone else how much they don't like this person or they don't like Pastor Steve or what Pastor Steve has done. Or, and then they've never come to talk to me about it, but that they've heard the gossip and all of a sudden their heart starts to close up because of something that they've heard, a rumor or gossip. And then I hear it third or fourth hand and then I got to start to call them and try to say, open up your heart, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what happens. And oftentimes their hearts are shut. They don't want to hear it. They're just convinced that what they think is right is right. And that's exactly how Paul is dealing with this. Paul's had to say some hard things. He says, look, I'm not trying to condemn you guys and telling you don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but it's because I love you. Remember, look at the relationship. This is the pastor-church relationship. Paul is not a guy who shows up on Sunday to teach and he disappears the rest of the week. He says, I've said before, you're in our hearts. That's where pastors are supposed to carry the sheep, the people in their hearts. I'll die with you, which is sometimes easier than the next part. I'll live with you. That's the hard part. I'll die with you, but it's living with you. That's the hard part. Isn't that true, church? I got a great book. Haven't even heard of Paul David Tripp. He's a well-known counselor, Bible teacher. I was a pastor, I think, of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He wrote a book that I loved reading called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And I just loved the title of it. It was a great book. But Paul, I think, would say the same thing. I think he'd agree with that title. Relationships. His relationship with the Corinthians, it was messy, but it was worth it. So verse 4, he says, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. So Paul says, look, I know I've had to speak boldly to you. Tough love in a way. Speak a little openly. I've had to say some hard things. But don't get the idea that all I ever do is talk bad about you. Because he says, great is my boasting on your behalf. So yeah, there had to be some things in the relationship that were fixed, that had to be fixed. But Paul said, when I talk to other people about you, it's not always about how bad you are or how rough our relationship has been or how tense it can be. Paul says, when I talk to other people about you, I choose to talk about the good things that I know about you. And there were some good things in Corinth, God had poured out his grace on them. They had come short and no spiritual gift. God was at work. Some of them had been sexually perverted and some of them had been liars and thieves and they had been changed. That's in 1 Corinthians. Their lives had been radically altered forever. And Paul talks about their willingness to accept God and accept Christ. So he wants them to know that he's just not out there running them down to other people that he's meeting with, other churches and Maybe we could take a relationship or communication lesson from that. Paul did not let the bad cloud the good. He didn't let the negative cloud the positive. Sometimes we have to choose to think about and to focus on the good things in people. Because Satan wants you to think about all the bad things in people. And as difficult as we can be, church, there's still good things to find in other people. Isn't that true? Sometimes it's a challenge. You've got to look real hard, <laughs> but it's worth it. Great is my boldness of speech. Great is my boasting. I am filled with comfort. Paul doesn't say, I'm filled with bitterness. I'm filled with anger. I'm outraged. I'm offended. 
Paul doesn't say that. He says, look, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. This guy is awesome. Well, what's an example of why he's joyful regarding them? And he gives this next section is really the pinpointed example of why Paul's experiencing joy. He says, for when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were continually being troubled. We were continually being troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. So it's kind of a a little bit of a history lesson here. Paul had a back and forth relationship with Corinth. He'd visited there. He'd sent letters. They'd sent word back to him. And he had a meeting there at one point that ended up not going so well. He'd gone to the city. Some of the people in the church had a very negative response to him. It was one of those meetings where you leave and you're just sick to your stomach about how it went. Like, oh, that didn't go like I had hoped. So Paul ends up writing a letter, what is known in Christian circles as the harsh letter. And he sends that by the hand of Titus. So instead of going back to visit Corinth again after that harsh meeting, he sends a letter instead. He sends an email. And (laughs) well, you'll see what happens in a minute. He sends an email. And then instead of going to Corinth, he heads north. And he sends the letter with Titus. Let's Titus take the brunt of it. Titus, you go. And that's just wisdom, isn't it? There's sometimes where the Corinthians weren't in a place to receive from Paul, at least not directly. So he says, I'm going to send Titus as my ambassador. Let him bring the letter. Let him try to mediate. So he tells Titus exactly what's going on. brings him up to speed on the difficulties, sends him with the letter, and then runs for cover. He heads to Macedonia, and he's waiting for Titus to show up because he couldn't just, hey, Titus, just text me after the meeting. Let me know how it went. Shoot me an email. Let me know how things are going. Do you imagine the lag in communication? You know how it is when you're waiting for a phone call or an email from somebody and it's not there day one, day two, day three. You're like, did they not get it? Did they not listen? Do they not care? Do they not want to talk about it? How do they feel? What are they experiencing? I'm so confused. I don't know. And that's how Paul was having to feel. Second Corinthians is a very emotional letter. And he even says, I went to Macedonia. That's where Philippi is. That's where Thessaloniki is. That's where Berea is. Paul had experienced a lot of trouble there. That's where he was imprisoned in Philippi. And then they chased him out of Thessalonica. They chased him to Berea. He had a lot of enemies in Macedonia, northern Greece. So when he goes back there, he says, man, there's trouble on every side. I got conflicts on the outside, battles or combat. You know how that feels, don't you? I got things around me are a mess. But what I think is even more interesting, he draws back the curtain of his heart and he shares with you what's going on on the inside of his life. He says, inside were fears. Just hold on a moment. This is a transparent moment from the Apostle Paul. I mean, people are more than happy to talk about what's going on the outside. Oh, my work is going like this, or my boss is doing that, or the government's this. These are the things that are going on outside, and we'll blame, and we're victims, and all that. But Paul says, I'm aware of what's going on on the inside of me. How aware are you of what's really going on on the inside? And how willing are you to share that with somebody else, to be transparent? You see, I'm not making this up. Paul's telling the people that are against him about the deep thoughts of the inner life. And I find oftentimes when you want to talk to people about their inner life, the walls go up. Boom, I'm not going there. Not talking about that. I'd rather talk about anything else. So how about the weather? Remember the woman at the well? Jesus meets. So yeah, oh, I don't have a husband. You're right. You got five husbands and the guy you're with now isn't your husband. Oh, how about the weather? Let's talk about anything else. 
except what's really going on inside of me right now. And for Paul, he's not proud of it. He said, there's a lot of fear. What was Paul fearful of? Paul was probably fearful of the letter he wrote and how the Corinthians were handling it. He was fearful. Why isn't Titus here? He went to Troas. That's where he was going to meet Titus. And guess what? Titus didn't show up. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. In this head, all the worst scenarios start happening. In the absence of information, I will imagine the worst. How about you? You do the same thing? Yeah, experience fears on the inside. In the lack of information, we tend to gravitate toward the worst possible scenario in our hearts and in our minds. We are sure it's going to be awful. And that's where Paul is. He's just being honest. But look at verse 6. We don't leave him there with fears on the inside. He sees God ministering to him. Verse 6 says, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, literally depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Wow, what a turn of events, isn't it? Paul was discouraged and downcast and disheartened and depressed. And now all of a sudden, he's soaring. And it's a double whammy. Did you catch that? He says, nevertheless, in the midst of my fears and the battles, Titus showed up. And that brought Paul tremendous joy. Titus came. I wonder how many of you would have said, oh, I'm praying for God to comfort me. I'm fearful on the inside. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. And I'm praying for God to comfort me. And then God brings a person into your life, a friend that shows up and you don't see it as the hand of God. We tend to overlook the very natural ways God ministers to us. We write those off and we wait for God to do it in the miraculous. I'm waiting for God to just change me on the inside. Just do it all by himself. And in this case, there's different ways God comforts at different times. But in this case, Paul saw the coming of Titus. That Titus showed up. He's here. Great that that was the hand of God comforting him. Praise the Lord for good friends who comfort us with the coming of Titus, but not just because he came, he showed up, but look at the kind of news he brought, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. He brought good news. You see, when he showed up in Corinth with the harsh letter and they talked it out, it went really well. So they reassured Titus that everything was going to be okay that they weren't angry with Paul, they weren't ready to sever ties with Paul altogether, that they actually loved Paul. Actually, he says, when he told us of your earnest desire, they wanted to see Paul. They weren't wishing the worst for Paul, they wanted to see him. You're mourning. You see, when they read the letter, they mourned over it. They grieved over their own behavior. Isn't that a rarity these days? They grieved over their behavior, and he says, and your zeal for me. Oh, so that I rejoiced even more. I tell you what, some of the greatest pains in our lives are because of relationships. It's sort of like the porcupine dilemma. I share this fairly often. You've heard me say it, the porcupine dilemma. The porcupines were all there on a cold day and they were all standing alone and they decided that they were all cold. So the best thing they could do is to try to gather together to get warmth from each other. And as they started to get closer and closer to each other, what happened? They are porcupines, you know. They began to prick each other and stab each other. It was not purposeful. It was just they were prickly. 
And the closer they got, the more prickly they became to each other. And so they said, ooh, this hurts. We should move away from each other. So they began to move away from each other. And what happened? They got cold again. And that's why it's the porcupine dilemma, because there's no answer other than if you want to be close to people, you're going to get pricked and you're going to get poked because people are prickly and pokey. Man, you're pokey. God has never meant for us to be solo and isolated. But here's the cool thing. Not only do the great pains of life often come from broken relationships or stressed out, tense situations and conflicts, but the great joys also come from relationships when we work through our issues and we mend and we reconcile. That's what the Lord, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. And there is such joy when you've had conflict and when you've gone through that, it takes you so low. And Paul says, when I heard you guys, he hears it secondhand. And that's oftentimes how I hear it, second or third hand. When Paul hears that things are on the up and up and that they're humble and that they're mourning over how they acted, then Paul says, oh, the height of joy of the prospect of that relationship being mended. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, so good. Unfortunately, in our day and age, I fear we experience that way too little. I'm afraid that we are in a very difficult relational crisis around the world. And I can certainly say in America, people have gotten really bad at relationship. Pride. We all got Humpty Dumpty syndrome. We're all perched high on a wall, but we're fragile. But the Humpty Dumpty challenge for us is that there we are perched on a high wall And when someone dare say that we might have done something wrong or hurtful, we fall off the wall, it knocks us off our wall, and we just crash all to pieces because we're so fragile. Instead of working it out, and we retreat into our hole and out of relationship, and there we stay because we're too afraid to trust, we're too afraid to get hurt, we're too afraid to love. And then what kind of life does that lead to? So Paul would recognize the great challenges of relationship, but also the great joys. He says, look at verse eight. Now we're getting into the meat of this. For even if I made you sorry, by the way, eight times he will use the word sorry. Even though I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while, only for an hour, only for a short time. So he writes this email, or really a letter. We would write the email. And after he writes it, he says, I regretted it. You ever sent one of those? I wrote the letter. You know, nobody likes to hurt someone they love. But sometimes we've got to say hard things. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. Your friends are the people that in love will tell you the truth about how you're living or what you're doing. So sometimes we got to do that with our kids or with our friends or with people in church. You got to approach them. We're all so afraid to communicate. Paul says, I'm willing to risk the relationship because of the hope that you might see the destructive behavior you have and change. So Paul risks it. It's a wager, isn't it? He risks it. He sends this letter. He says, oh man, he second guessed, he third guessed this harsh letter. I'm sure the letter was laced with compassion. I'm sure it wasn't just an angry email. He was venting, blowing off steam. And he said all kinds of inappropriate things because that's the email that I would send. I'm sure that's not the letter Paul sent. I'm sure he thought it through very carefully, chose his words carefully, was gracious and compassionate with his confrontation. Would you agree with that? That seems to be the Apostle Paul's style. Matter of fact, he says in chapter two, verse four, when he wrote this letter, he wrote it with tears and great affliction. 
He was torn apart as he wrote this letter and he's weeping. The ink is running because of the tear stains on the page. Paul did not enjoy laying into them like you and I might. He did not enjoy giving them a piece of his mind. It broke his heart that he had to write this. I remember a number of years ago hearing about a, an emotional affair that was happening in the church. The wife, of course, comes and tells me what's going on. I grab another one of the elders and we go to the guy that's involved. And man, we laid into him. What do you think you're doing? Cut out that relationship. You got a family to think about. You know, you're in ministry. And what are you thinking about? And we just, we were right in what we said. You know that feeling, mom and dad? Where the punishment was deserved, the timeout or whatever you chose to do was deserved, but maybe you feel like you were a little harsh. You ever felt that way? Maybe I was angry. Maybe I should have cooled down. And then, you know, the feelings. That's how Paul is feeling. When I left that confrontation with that man, I felt like what I had said was biblical. What I had said was right, but it lacked compassion. And I failed to listen and appreciate how he was feeling at the time as well. So I understand what Paul is saying. He says, though, I perceive the same epistle made you sorry, but only for a time. Look at verse nine. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. I'm not happy that I made you sad. Nobody is happy. Nobody with a soft heart is happy to make someone else feel bad. It always hurts. It's always difficult. But why is he happy? He says, I'm happy. I rejoice because your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there are two things that we're going to talk about that are essential to identifying true repentance. The difference between repentance and regret. Sometimes a person can regret. They're different words. They're two different words in the Greek language. This word Paul's talking about is the word that means to repent, change of mind, change of direction. And I will say to you that the one thing, one sure sign that repentance is happening is sorrow. You cannot have real repentance without an actual emotional response. Now, emotions alone don't signify repentance. That's why there's two things that are going to go hand in hand, like two oars in a boat that will signify true repentance. But without sorrow, it doesn't mean it has to have tears, but the actual sign of repentance is brokenness. If you ain't broken, you ain't repentant. And I've been there. Sometimes people just want to brush it under the carpet. They just want to say the words and get it over with. They don't want to actually deal with it. And I understand that. Sometimes we're ashamed. Sometimes we're embarrassed. Sometimes we feel terrible. We feel guilty. And in our pride, in our ego, we get defensive because we don't like feeling ashamed. And we don't like feeling embarrassed and we don't like hurting people. So when we get confronted about having hurt somebody, the wall of defensiveness or blame or victimization goes up. And I get that. I understand that. Think about David, Psalm 51, where David has to repent about the Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite thing. And he writes that Psalm and he says, if I could give a sacrifice, I'd give it. That would be easy. I'd bring you some money, God, or I'd bring you an animal or something. But he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And I've been in conflict resolutions times. Half my job as a pastor is trying to help people get along and work out their stuff. And you get two people together and got the chip on the shoulder and there's no real brokenness. So they say, well, I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then they go their way. And I'm like, well, that's maybe a D. 
you get a D in reconciliation. What would make it an A? A broken heart. When you actually feel bad, feel bad emotionally about what you did, about how things went down. And not just before that person, but before God. The emotional sorrow is the emotional response of a broken heart with respect to a loving God. And again, as I said previously, no one who loves feels good about hurting the object of their love. If God is the object of your love, then you cannot feel good if you've hurt him. And when you hurt others, you hurt him. Now, he says, for your sorrow led to repentance, which is that change of mind. They felt terrible. They mourned. And that led them to a change of mind about how they were dealing with things. I don't know about you. He says, you were made sorry in a godly manner or according to God. So the sorrow, listen, sorrow is godly. Now I know this is a radical truth for the church today because we live in the day of God just wants me to be happy, right? Oh, doesn't God just want me to be happy? No, sometimes God wants you to feel terrible about the way you live. Sometimes he does because that is what leads to change. No brokenness, no change. No sadness, no brokenness. No sadness, no brokenness, no brokenness, no change. And somehow we think that our relationships can be better without us ever having to change. It's them. You may start in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. Whenever people don't get along, we suffer loss. Paul had something valuable to give to them. They had something valuable to give to Paul. And by cutting him out, they would cut off the valuable ministry he would have for them. Look at verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. You cannot be saved apart from true sorrow and brokenness over sin in your life. You see, we are the add God to my life generation. I just need a little help with my marriage. I just need a little help with my finances. Church is just a good place to raise your kids. That's all fine and well, but that doesn't lead to salvation. Do you remember when you got saved? Remember ever having a day when you just had realized you had gone the wrong way? And you realize what you've done when your eyes were sort of, the scales fell off, your eyes were open, and you're like, what am I doing? I mean, I can't speak for you. That's my salvation story. You know, parking lot in Charlottesville. God just face to face with my sin and the feeling of brokenness and regret and lostness and loneliness that I experienced at that time. I didn't know what repentance was. I didn't get saved in a church or a Billy Graham crusade. I didn't know what repentance was or meant, but I did it in the spirit. It was a natural thing. God showed me my sin. I was broken over it. And at that day, my life changed forever. Forever. I said, I need to get back to God. I just knew instinctively, I'm not walking with God. I'm not walking toward God. My life is my own. I'm doing what I want to do. And I'm blowing it. And I'm hurting people because of my own issues. Unresolved, godless issues. And I needed to turn around I don't know much. I know I need to get back to church. That's where I started. I didn't know anything. And then even after that, repentance isn't a one-time thing. Even after that, because you start out pretty ignorant about the things of God. And then all of a sudden someone, I'm at a conference with a guy. He was a Christian and I'm a new believer. And I tell him, oh, I'm a new believer. And I start to tell him about my life. And he says, oh, you're doing that? I said, yeah. He said, well, that, that's sin. I said, really? I didn't know that was sin. And I remember again, that feeling of brokenness, like, wow, I didn't know that. I was ignorant. And that feeling of, oh, and I remember calling Helga, my wife, and saying, I got to stop doing this. Just that feeling of, well, 
Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's this reversal that happens in our lives, reversal of direction. Interesting, you've heard the word penitentiary, right? Heard the word penitentiary? Do you know that has at its root repentance? At the beginning of our nation, the first official penitentiary that was built was sort of planned out and decided upon. Prison reform was decided upon by the likes of William Penn and Dr. Benjamin Rush Shiners of the Declaration. And they decided that a radical change needed to take place because the conditions in the prisons, the jails were so horrifying. And Benjamin Rush was convinced that crime was a moral disease. We know it's a spiritual disease and suggested a house of repentance where prisoners could meditate on their crimes, experience spiritual remorse, and undergo rehabilitation. The method was later called the Pennsylvania System and the Institution of a Penitentiary. Inmates lived in complete isolation with a Bible, their only possession, and chores like shoemaking and weaving to occupy the time. In each cell, the eye of God, quote, the eye of God, suggesting that to the prisoners that God was watching them, or really suggesting that the only place to look for light is up. The window was a single glass skylight placed in a slanted wall near the rear of the cell. That was the only daylight they could see. So if they wanted light, they wanted to see, they had to look up. And that was the idea. Now, the problem is you can't make a person repent. They might feel sorry about what they did. They might feel sorry they got caught. They might regret the consequences, but you can't make a person repent. Only a broken heart can do that. James writes the same thing. James chapter four. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Pastor, you're supposed to preach fun messages. This is fun. It's fun because of what Paul says here. See, the challenge of repentance is shame, guilt, embarrassed, defensive, But man, he says the sorrow of the world leads to death. When sorrow actually leads you to repent and actually changes your life, we all get to rejoice with you because you're not the same you used to be. You've taken your sin seriously. What does the world do when they experience sorrow? What do people in the world do? Our suicide rates are skyrocketing. People experience embarrassment. They experience shame. They experience guilt. And they don't know what to do with it. And the one end of that, well, depression, bitterness, suicide. The message of the Bible is that you can be forgiven. I mean, think about Peter and Judas, the classic example of the difference between regret and repentance. Judas sells out Jesus, regrets it, tosses the blood money back, goes and hangs himself. You figure he would have known better. Peter denies the Lord three times, When Jesus looks at him, he weeps bitterly. He's broken. And then Jesus says, go tell the apostles and Peter. And when Peter sees Jesus on the shore, he jumps in and he swims to Jesus. And Jesus restores him. That's what repentance does. Repentance doesn't drive us away from God. Regret does. Shame does. Repentance actually brings us closer to God for forgiveness and reconciliation, and restoration. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. 
The first thing true repentance will always produce is sorrow. Without sorrow, you can question whether the repentance is truly true. The second thing it will always produce is seriousness. Seriousness about sin, seriousness about setting the matter straight. Did you see that here? Observe this very thing. You sorrowed or were sad in a godly manner. There's an ungodly way to be sad. That leads to hopelessness and death, ultimately, what Paul just said. But the godly way to experience sorrow is to let that drive you to change. He says, look at the speed it produced. I mean, you didn't wait around and say, well, I guess we should pray about it. You took matters into your hands right away to straighten it out. What clearing of yourselves. You did what it took to defend yourselves in terms of not being defensive toward Paul, but defend against the situation, defend against any further claims of wrong. You set things straight. What indignation they were displeased with themselves. Do you know that feeling? You ever feel that feeling, that contrition? I am so mad at me. I am so disappointed in me. That's what happened with them. The indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, and what zeal, and what vindication. They did what it took. They said, what do we have to do to make it right? Oh, those words, music to a pastor's ear. Because most of the time, people don't care about making it right. Because sometimes the pain of making it right is difficult, isn't it? Yeah, you got to face embarrassment. You got to face some shame. You got to face some guilt. But it is short-lived and it yields to joy. The pain of unrepentance, ask King David, who for a year struggled physically, struggled mentally, struggled, his family wrestled because of it. Unrepented sin will cause you lifelong damage. Whereas the pain of confessed sin and repentance is short-lived and yields to rejoicing. And that's what he says here. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. They did what it took. I love that. Challenging sermon? Yeah? A little bit? Good though? Necessary? We live in a time of very callous hearts, and that makes relationship very difficult. So my hope for Calvary Chapel Fluvanna is that, number one, there's a willingness to communicate with each other, and number two, there's a willingness to be contrite and be broken when the reality of sin in your life is brought to the surface. I think we'll experience the joy Paul experienced when we can live that way, don't you?